0: This is such a Washington thing. A friend of mine was waiting for an elevator, and the doors opened, and there was Rudy... Giuliani. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is such a small town, you know, and there yeah. he is on trial. He she was checking to see whether there were
1: drapes down
2: the side of his face.
1: Did you spend any time with Rudy Giuliani for your book on Trump?
2: My, my main exposure to Rudy Giuliani is in uh, that other classic Washington venue, the uh, television green room. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Tell
0: us, how was, was he charming behind the
2: scenes? I, you yeah. know, kind of like the myth of Donald Trump's charisma, uh, been wildly overstated. <laughs> you asked about The book. One of the most fascinating things that did come out eventually was Rudy Giuliani really was desperate to be Donald Trump's Secretary of State. And he believed, no, seriously. And he believed that he was, that was the only appropriate cabinet role for him. And he demanded that back after Trump won the election in 2016. Uh, I believe it was Jonathan Swan, then of Axios, obtained a copy, which we then read and used in our book of the Trump team's own internal Oppo research on Rudy and why. Even for Donald Trump's team, he couldn't (laughs) get the job of secretary of state. And it went through chapter and verse of all the kind of shady consulting gigs and like how he was telling, you know, Mexico City, they were going to he was going to end their crime problem. And, you know, all the all these incredible examples. It is, uh, by the way, you can access this document online. It is it is quite quite a read. Too sleazy for Trump. That's the the headline.
1: Exactly. When these guys say, you know what, the more I look at this, the more I think he's just not fit for (laughs) Welcome to the political scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I'm joined by my colleagues, as ever, Jane Mayer and Susan Glasser. Good morning to you both.
2: Good morning. Hi, Evan.
1: This time last year, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky arrived in Washington to a hero's welcome. We all remember him giving a speech in Congress, and he received tens of billions of dollars in military aid. But this past Tuesday, when Zelensky came back to Washington for the third time, he had a very different reception. His pleas for more military aid were stonewalled. He was met with total inaction from Congress. The holdup was thanks largely to Republicans on the Hill, whose support for Ukraine has dwindled sharply since the war began in 2022. In fact, many Republicans now seem willing to let Ukraine fail in its war against Russian forces. It's just the most recent example of a remarkable transformation that has taken place within the GOP, a party that after all once defined itself by its opposition to the Kremlin. A big part of the story has to do with Donald Trump and his admiration for strong men like Vladimir Putin. But the more that you look at it, the clearer it becomes that the GOP's affinity for illiberal leaders like Putin has been in the making for a very long time. And this week, we wanted to go back and explore that hidden history. Susan, of course, you lived and worked in Russia. You focused on it for years. When did you begin to see that story merging with your sense of Washington?
2: Well, look, I think you're right. To focus on the idea that this didn't spring full blown from exactly. Donald Trump's fever That's dreams, right. <laughs> although he he has had a long standing admiration for strongmen generally and for that we know. Vladimir Putin specifically. But there are a number of antecedents. First of all, actually, Republicans themselves, there is a long strain of admiration for. Uh, authoritarian, uh, even dictatorial leaders. And this goes all the way back through the history of the 20th century. Uh, But of course, this is not, you know, the far left Kremlin of, you know, the communist era anymore, the Soviet Union. This is a far right Kremlin re-engineered and repurposed by Vladimir Putin. And so to me, the story that we're talking about right now really begins probably in the mid-1990s after Mm -hmm. the breakup of the Soviet Union. What is – Russia's new identity. What is it going to be? And there's a fascinating moment that we wrote about in our, our first book, Kremlin Rising, in the 1990s. Boris Yeltsin is the president. And the country's in crisis. It doesn't have an identity. It doesn't have an ideology. In fact, it rejects ideology as a result of 70 years of, you know, being force-fed uh, Soviet dogma in in school. What is it going to be as a country? Yeltsin actually sets up a national commission on, you know, the Russian identity. This is a country that was at such an impasse with itself. It didn't even have words that it could agree on to a national anthem. So when they played the anthem at the Olympics, it was no words. Hmm. Because there were no <laughs> words that they story. could agree upon. Uh-huh. And so this national commission, amazingly, did its work for a couple of years. And guess what? It failed. It basically, it found that the only thing left that Russians really had to take pride in was their victory in World War II over the Nazis uh, and a sort of generic sense of national pride that flowed from that. Well, of course, that was what Putin came into office. Mm. uh, And, you know, as Yeltsin's successor, remember New Year's Eve, 1999, Yeltsin appoints him as his heir, this unknown KGB agent. But when he first comes in, there's a lot of debate about what is his ideology. But over, I would say, the course of his first few years in office a new orthodoxy takes place and so i would i would really date it to putin's return to mm. power after the sort of brief dmitry medvedev interregnum exactly yeah. in 2011 go back to the official state ideology of the russian czars orthodoxy autocracy nationalism in effect That's what Putinism is. And it's it's been very appealing to uh, his audience, not only inside Russia, but also to far-right groups in Europe, a la Orban in Hungary, and in the United States, where he started to get adherents like Tucker Carlson talking up Putin's way. I
0: mean, even— even before Tucker Carlson, this goes back quite a ways on the right, too, in in America. Um, so if you go back to like 1992, you begin to start seeing these kind of bottom feeders of American politics heading over to Moscow. Lyndon LaRouche mm. is there in 1992, a conspiracy theorist, uh, just far fringe figure. He's over there. Then he's succeeded by David Duke, right. the head of the KKK, who said, Sets up in Moscow for a while. His books are translated into Russian. He finds, as Susan says, kind of a great sort of values connection with this kind of nationalist Autocratic, dictatorial, and white—face it—it has to do with white Christian nationalism, Um, and he feels very at home there. And there's that connection, and it begins to grow on the right into circles that are connected to Trump. Hmm. I mean, so you get Richard Spencer, um, who um, has
1: the the, alt-right white nationalist exactly.
0: He He's had many connections with Russia, including that he's married to a Russian woman who is a great apologist for Putin. So, again, you're seeing this kind of strange connection. I didn't really, in my own work, know that much about this. I mean, it seemed improbable at first, but I sort of stumbled across it one day when I was looking into the homeschooling movement on the Christian huh. right – and the largest and most right-wing homeschooling organization, which is the the, the uh, Homeschool Legal Defense Fund, um, was meeting in Moscow, and it's run by kind of a figure in Virginia who has long been involved in kind of right-wing politics and, you know, sort of thinking that's strange. What mm-hmm. what what are these people homeschoolers doing in Moscow? But of course, it's a very religious, very Christian, and very reactionary movement. Um, So they found sort of a values connection with Putinism.
2: Well, that's right. Even though, of course, Putin's religion is Russian orthodoxy, which is very different than the sort of uh, right wing Christian evangelical religion of Michael Ferris, the the Virginia politician uh, homeschooler that you're talking about. And yet the rhetoric really struck a chord. I think you're exactly right about that. The other thing is, you know, remember that what is Putin doing over the course of consolidating power in Russia? He is systematically passing new laws that are highly restrictive restrictive, uh, cracking down on human rights and civil rights, Russia quickly under Putin ended up with some of the most restrictive anti-LGBTQ laws in Uh, Europe, for sure. And this is a huge cause celeb for Putin. uh, And Putin is essentially setting himself up as not just an internal tough guy, but actually as a sort of a global figure of the reactionary right.
1: So then you have this interesting uh, split forming within the rhetoric from the Republican Party, because I think people will remember in 2012 when Mitt Romney famously said at one point that Russia was, as he said, America's number one geopolitical foe. At the time, that became a kind of laugh line, the idea that this was a an antique reference from the Cold War. And so what you're describing is that there was a part of the Republican world which hadn't yet fully manifested itself in the form of Trump and Trumpism, that was seeing itself more aligned with Russia and this emerging kind of reactionary ideascape. And then there was at the same time this rump state of the old descendant of the Republican foreign policy establishment that still perceived itself in conflict With Russia, is that right? These two things sort of coexisted at the same time? Well,
2: remember, the the, the people who were sort of admiring Putin, they were the kind of fringe Mm. at that time. And really, up until... Trump's ascendance to the presidency, he represented a minority of a minority viewpoint inside the Republican Party. The Republican Party at that time was the party of Mitt Romney, the party of John McCain. They were kind of Russia hawks in their political DNA going back to the Reagan era. And of course, that's still a very significant part of the Republican Party today. Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador, South Carolina governor, she represents, I would say, in the current Republican kind of ecosphere that the air of that view of Romney and McCain. And they were always criticizing uh, Democrats like Barack Obama uh, from the vantage point of, you know, I've got to out Reagan, Reagan. I've got to use kind of the rhetoric of the Cold War about evil empire transmogrified into uh, the Putin era. And and of course, Romney's statement has held up a lot better than Barack Obama's response to it. And it was only two years later that Vladimir Putin illegally annexed the Crimean Peninsula, the first such annexation of territory really since the end of World War II, radical revision essentially of European borders, and began the proxy war conflict in eastern Ukraine that continues today in this much more dramatic form.
0: I mean, that. so, you know, that 2014 turning point, really, once once Russia... Annexed Crimea is is also, I think, where you can see that the far right continues to embrace the Russian side, and it actually gets to become anti-Ukrainian in many ways. So you see, like a particular Russian oligarch is funding a lot of these conferences. His name is Konstantin Malofeev, and they call him. God's oligarch, and he's he's very so. He's anti- a sort of
1: Christian Russian, yes, uh, and oligarchic who starts
0: funding these these conferences of American right wing Christian nationalists. So you see this connection growing. But can I just say one other thing that about the strain of what's happening now in American? politics on the right, is that in some ways, I mean, you've got a split between the old Reagan worldview that we've just been talking about and then a revival in a way of something earlier, which is what the right wing was in the 1930s. It was isolationist. Mm. And if you look at like the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal right now, this is playing out like Paul Gigo there, who's the editorial page editor, um, is lamenting that his fellow conservatives are... Turning towards isolationism, and and the, there's a big there's a, a split and a fight there, um, and and that's what we're looking at. Look,
2: history doesn't echo, but it does rhyme in this particular case, and I think that there is a, a struggle that we're all kind of watching play out in real time between Republicans who you know have this vestigial idea of of Russia as a as a rival and an enemy, and uh, this notion of What's our business here really anyways?
1: Before we, we go to the break, I want to mention something else here that I think is important for us to explore, which is Putin's role in this. Because, you know, we've talked about the oligarchs that are behind it. We've talked about some of the figures in the American far right That have gravitated to Russia. But if you talk to anybody in the intelligence community about this strange conjunction of interests and organizations, they will tell you that it is seems more than coincidental. Here's a 2017 story in The Washington Post in which Stephen Hall, who uh, many here will know, who's a former CIA officer, uh, longtime Russia specialist, said of things like the Russian involvement in the NRA. His quote at the time was, is it possible that these are just well-meaning people who are reaching out to Americans with shared interests? He says it's possible, but is it likely? I don't think it's likely at all. He says, my assessment is it's definitely part of something bigger. Has the right wing allowed itself to get pulled into essentially an op?
0: I yeah I mean some of it I I think you have to think so if you take a look at one of the things that russian money and expertise has been involved in is a bizarre secessionist movement in Texas. Hmm. I mean, these are destructive movements in the United States that you can you can see are are an effort to damage American democracy.
2: Well, look, you know, I would say that the Soviet Union uh, had this playbook as well and was, uh, you know, delighted to actively point out and to work and to you know pick at the seams that divide Americans, and that that's a, that's a formula that works. You're dividing the United. States from Europe. That was a foundation uh, for decades of Russian policy and before that of Soviet policy, dividing Americans from each other. Very well documented uh, here. I think both uh, the Mueller report and actually the bipartisan Senate intelligence report are both required reading on this subject. And I really would direct people to that. But, you know, again, are these divisions that are created by Russia? Is it some elaborate conspiracy theory? No, of course not. These are our own Divisions, uh, exactly. and w- one of the things is that you know Putin is at heart. I think it's important to remember an intelligence a KGB agent, officer. and yeah. uh, he's a KGB officer who sees conspiracies around every bush. Uh, to the extent that he tends to make mistakes in judging the United States and, and other Western societies, it's because he often projects his kind of KGB like views onto those societies. Uh, And so, for example, when Putin returned to power after sitting out uh, a term as Dmitry Medvedev took officially the title, when he returned to power, there are huge, massive protests all across Russia's big cities, St. Petersburg, Moscow, hundreds of thousands in the streets. And Vladimir Putin blamed Hillary Clinton. He said that, you know, the State Department had somehow orchestrated what actually was probably the biggest challenge to his rule in his two decades of power in Russia. That's the way he thinks. He's a conspiracy minded guy. And, you know, his intervention in the 2016 U.S. election, one of the things the Mueller report points out that I think is really important for this conversation, it was in many ways organized after
1: as a response, those, to, his that. As a response to those American involvement, protests right?
2: and as a response to the American sanctions that were imposed on him after the annexation of Crimea in 2014. So before Donald Trump even was running for president. Can
0: I ask you guys though, do you think I have this feeling that the Mueller report and the whole issue of Russia's sort of um tampering in United States politics has been set back by by, by just a concerted and a relentless effort by Trump and the people around him say Russia, 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 and suggest that there was never anything. I think that's huge. I think they've I think made a lot of a headway in in convincing people of that. No, part and of our part of the I'm purpose of this conversation is to,
1: to say that there just because one piece of it was not what everybody might have imagined at the time does not mean that you then chuck out the other elements that are uh, well documented, long standing, go all the way back, as Susan said, to uh, the the practices of the intelligence community in the Soviet Union uh, and continue in many ways uh, until the present day. There was another interesting moment this week in Washington. Allies of Hungary's strongman Viktor Orban were in town and they spoke at, of all places, the Heritage Foundation. Did you guys notice this? Did this strike you as a bizarre reflection of the moment?
0: I mean, the thing is that, you know, Orban, we know him as, you know, the greatest ally to Putin in the European Union. And he has also been very closely allied with the right wing of the Republican Party and with the Trump wing.
2: That's exactly right, Jane. I mean, this is, you know, sort of call it the, uh, the axis of the illiberals. Hmm. And, uh, you know, Viktor Orban has been celebrated in recent years. But I think it's this nexus between Orban and Putin and their amplifiers and cheerleaders here in the United States on the American right that, you know, really speaks to this moment when Ukraine – by the way, is fighting for its very existence. Yeah. And that's the thing. This isn't just some academic exercise. There are real Ukrainian lives in the balance I of think these that's, debates.
0: Susan, that's such a good point, because basically this has been kind of a, a back burner story. It's been sort of a fringe romance taking place mm. between the far right and, and Putin and Orban. But you're so right. It actually has got, as you put it, table stakes. The stakes. And you're the stakes like, are profound. Like the stakes is,
1: are actually literally live. This, this in the could balance.
0: change history depending on what happens here.
1: OK, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to welcome our second ever political scene guest to talk about how illiberal movements abroad aren't just winning approval among American conservatives. They're also serving as a model for politics back in the United States. Hey, political scene listeners. The Iowa caucuses are just a few weeks away, and that means that we are getting ready for a new phase here, the 2024 election. And we want to hear from all of you. We want to hear your questions about any and all of it.
0: There have been a lot of questions about how the media has covered politics, particularly Trump, in the last couple of years. And I, I think it'd be really interesting to hear questions from listeners about what they actually want to hear about. So, so send in your questions.
2: Yeah, fire away. I mean, we want to hear from you. So, tell us what we should be talking about in 2024 because uh your opinion matters.
1: Send us your questions at themail@newyorker.com and you might hear some answers on the show. Be sure to put the political scene in the subject line. Again, it's themail@newyorker.com and thank you very much and now back to the show. <laughs> All right, we're back with our second ever political scene guest, New Yorker staff writer Andrew Morantz. Andrew, welcome to the political scene. Guys, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Hey, welcome. Hey, Andrew.
1: Andrew, I think a lot of folks will know, listeners and and readers of the magazine will know you've done a tremendous amount of reporting over the years on the relationship between American conservatism and some of its, shall we say, sort of ideological roots and influences, including global right-wing movements. We wanted to talk with you about the way that these illiberal ideas, like those that are circulating in Russia and in Hungary, are finding their way into the American right. And I want to start with Hungary, a country that as you've described, has an outsized political influence in the American right. At one point, if I'm remembering right, Andrew, you actually went to Hungary and you were trying to get into a CPAC event there. This is the Conservative Political Action Conference. And what happened that you were able to get in, but through a side door?
3: Eventually. Yeah, I was eventually able to get in it. It it was (laughs) way harder than I expected. Um, Yeah. And, you know, you say this illiberal country has outsized influence. That's that's exactly right. And illiberal is not, um, you know, an aspersion. It's how Viktor Orban describes his own plan for his government. He says we want to create Hmm. an illiberal democracy. Uh, This is something he's been charting out for a long time. And so when I heard that CPAC was going to host not only its uh, annual, you know, Florida conference domestically, but then they announced our next conference will be CPAC Hungary. I thought this is a troll, right? This <laughs> is just someone who got access to some GOP account saying we're going to do CPAC Hungary because it seems too on the nose. It seemed like a fever dream. And then I looked into it and said, oh, no, this is really happening. I, I should probably go. So I went to CPAC Orlando Um Interestingly, uh, on CPAC Orlando, just to the point of what you were discussing earlier, that just happened to be scheduled on the weekend in February 2022 when Putin invaded Ukraine. So it was kind of fascinating to watching— see it reverberate
1: through that environment, I imagine. To
3: see everyone kind of putting their finger in the wind and, and, and figure out what is the party line going to be here because, of course— Trump gets the, the the keynote slot on Saturday night. Everyone else has to speak before him and nobody can guess what he's going to say about this. So they're all trying to kind of pre-triangulate what the message should be. It was it was kind of fascinating.
1: What did the folks at the CPAC conference say, actually, about the
3: invasion? It was sort of all over the map. Uh, Sebastian Gorka right away said the Russians are the invaders. They must pay for this. J.D. Vance really tried to dodge and said, you know, I don't care what happens in foreign countries. I just care about, you know, the invasion of fentanyl being brought in uh, through our southern border, you know, which was a huge applause line, even though it was a, a, a very brazen non sequitur, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, mm-hmm. It was not what people wanted to be talking about, but they kind of had to find a way through. And and it made it increasingly awkward when they had this announcement from the main stage that, you know, come join us in our next springtime conference in Budapest. In Budapest. Um, <laughs> So then in Orlando, I had shaken hands with the guy who was, you know, arranging the CPAC Hungary uh, extravaganza. And he said, yes, yes, you know, you'll be welcome. Just send us an email and we'll set it up. And I sent them an email and didn't hear back. And then I went over there and still didn't hear back. And then I, you know, had to really, really do like an extraordinary amount of legwork to get into the room. And by legwork, I basically mean sneaking in. Hmm. Um And this, you know, I bring all this up and I I wrote about it in the piece, uh, you know, not because my trials and tribulations are, you know, such a big sob story, but because this is a good illustration of what it means when people like Viktor Orban talk about illiberal democracy, right? So you don't outright ban the independent press. It's actually different than the way someone like Putin operates or the way, you know, China or Saudi Arabia or Venezuela operates. It's more subtle and there's always more plausible deniability. So instead of saying, you know, you're an enemy foreign agent if you write for a newspaper I don't like, you say, well, look, you're free to, you know, have your little, you know, press operation, but we just might you know, be late to get you your credentials. Or, you know, it might happen that an oligarch, you know, comes and takes over your your uh, business, and you start losing advertising revenue over time, and you know, then you sort of slowly fade away.
2: So let me ask you, Andrew, because this is the moment we're in the United States about to open our own election year in twenty twenty four. Orban has been elected multiple times and has, in effect, found a way to use. Uh, the tools and methods of democracy to make Hungary less democratic. And I'm curious how much you came away from this reporting, thinking that this is a model, that this is one of the reasons that American conservatives are interested in when we talk about the Hungary model, is using democracy for anti-democratic purposes.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say I came away worried enough about that that we called the piece, does Hungary offer a glimpse of our authoritarian future? Question mark. And, you know, so <laughs> there's a question mark at the end of it, but it's it's certainly a concern. And and I think part of what that concern is, it is not just, you know, the strong man at the top, which would imply that, you know, if Donald Trump weren't around, you know, Americans would have nothing to worry about. It, it's much more this kind of systemic uh, democratic erosion a lot of scholars talk about and i've written about this in future pieces about american state legislatures which jane i know you've also written about um you know jane focused on ohio i in a later piece focused on north carolina but it's not just if you don't have a very obvious cartoonishly corrupt oligarchic strongman then you know there's nothing to worry about there are actually very subtle bureaucratic changes that happen under cover of not only darkness, but just kind of undercover of boredom, right? Because they're so wonky <laughs> that nobody's really paying attention. But then you add it all up. And what you have is, yes, you can go vote. But does your vote, it, your vote's kind of diluted because the districts are so gerrymandered and because there are all these voting ID uh, restrictions and all these things that any one step, you can't say that was the one thing that killed democracy. But in aggregate, what you have is free, but not necessarily fair elections.
0: That's—I was going to ask you, Andrew, how, how do you see a liberal democracy that, of the type that Orbán's got translate and play out in other states, in the United States?
3: It's very similar. And, you know, you see, again, you don't have to sort of be a, a you know, red string on a corkboard conspiracy theorist to see the connections. I mean, you have in Florida, for example, Ron DeSantis' administration has admitted when they wrote the Don't Say Gay bill, they were looking to a previous bill, they were modeling it on a previous Hungarian law, which was itself modeled on a previous Russian law. So these are not, you know, no one's really entirely hiding the ball here.
1: I I often find it's useful to look at some of these independent analyses like Freedom House, which measure us against other countries. And the truth is, of course, uh, if we were talking about uh, another place, we would be uh, merciless about what's happened to us here. Just a final thing, Andrew, before you go. I'm curious, as you've you've looked at trolling over the years, you've looked at the role of these um, kind of uh, foreign alliances and I'm th- I'm interested in the the central question, the big question, which is what is driving ultimately this turn? Do you think within the American right wing is it, as we sometimes describe, a, a a response to immigration? Is it a response to the general diversification and more progressive outlook on life? What is it that you think is at the nub
3: of this? Yeah, I think it's aspartame. I mean, you've, if you look, no, I'm just kidding. I think. Um, <laughs> you know there 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 is like obviously no monocausal thing but i think that it's all the things you suggest inequality widening the ever you know theoretically uh, lauded but never actually achieved goal of actual multiracial democracy in this country all of these things play into the sort of grievance and negative partisanship and then i think what you have is a setup where a lot of people are engaging in politics purely as negative partisanship and sort of vibes and affect. Mm. Right. So, you know, because I think it's important in this discussion to say that not everyone who asks questions about military aid is a a, a Putin shill or anything like that. I mean, there are, you know, principled arguments against uh, all kinds of things, but those principled arguments are not necessarily driving you know, a lot of the congressional, you know, arguments or the, you know, Fox News segments. It's not that, you know, everybody is very studiously reading their John Mearsheimer and engaging in these realpolitik debates. A lot of it is vibes and affect and negative partisanship. So, you know, all these things get lumped together and conflated together. And then, you know, there's a kind of Mott and Bailey thing that happens. But a lot of it, I mean, not everyone, but a lot of people's politics are driven by what's the other team doing? Let's do the opposite. They have Ukraine flags in the windows. We'll, you know, do the opposite. They wear masks. We'll do the opposite. I mean, that's certainly what you see at CPAC.
1: The vibes. Well, Andrew, you've improved the vibes of this podcast, and we're grateful for you for coming by.
3: <laughs> Thank you so much, guys.
0: Thanks so much, Andrew. Great, Great to talk fantastic. with
3: you. Yeah. Excellent vibes all around. <laughs> Cheers, guys. <laughs> I have to say,
1: just on a pure reporting craft level, I love the idea that sometimes we just have to get on the plane and go. It is the wisdom of the ages. It
0: totally is. I have a friend, um, Jill Abramson, who used to be the editor of the New York Times. Whenever I'm just sort of despondent and thinking I'll never get this story, she always says to me, just go.
1: Just go. It's really <laughs> true.
2: Yeah. 90% of life is showing up, right? Totally it's totally true. true. When right. you're a reporter, for yeah. sure. Well, and and learning how to be told no and ignore it when when the time is right to ignore it. I must say, you know, I feel like we're giving ourselves a collective case, uh, understandably, of the end-of-year scaries uh, between uh, Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. We are having this conversation the same week that Hungary's nearby neighbors in Poland that's showed that point. it can be done, that's a good uh, point. And you know, while Orban has f- apparently found the key to electoral success with the Hungarian electorate. Uh, Right nearby in Poland, the democratic small-day opposition, after years and years of increasingly illiberal and authoritarian-minded rule in Poland, came back in an election and just this week inaugurated a new government under uh, former European Commission President Donald Tusk and promising to undo what was done over uh, the years of this kind of increasing illiberal rule and showing that the society was able to really mobilize. It was a general mobilization, especially by young people in Polish society, uh, that really made a difference. And it showed that you can beat back this kind of Appeal from let, the far right. I will right. say too,
1: if you listen to people who are involved in Polish politics these days, they will tell you that actually, at the heart of this too is abortion. There was a very restrictive right. abortion law in uh, in Poland, and I think this is a lesson for us to be thinking about in the context of American politics.
0: I, I, all I wanted to say was just let the record show that hell has frozen over, and Susan is now the voice <laughs> of optimism in politics in
2: no, world
1: just politics. The voice it's just voice okay, voice right. reality, Jane. Okay. All right. We'll take reality. We'll take reality. It's a, a step on the way to optimism. As we wrap this up, uh, Congress... Uh, adjourned this week for its rather long and luxurious holiday break, I will note. Uh, But that is it's important to point out, perhaps not the end of this question about whether there will be a bill to support Ukraine with more military support. Susan, you, you watch The Hill pretty closely. What's your estimate? Do you think they end up passing something or not?
2: You know, Evan, I was really struck this week when President Biden, who for uh, much of the time since 2022, has been saying that the United States will be there, quote, as long as it takes for Ukraine. This week, he said something different. Standing alongside President Zelensky, he said... The U.S. will be there for as long as we can, mm. and I, I think 2024—it's going to be a race against time. It's entirely possible these talks are continuing. The Senate, in fact, is staying in session probably a few more days while the House has left town. They're they're looking for, I think, the elusive terms of a deal that would somehow magically solve, you know, both the the border immigration impasse and the Ukraine money impasse. I'm I'm dubious about that. But, I, you know, there are many supporters who say that in the end there will be one more round of funding for Ukraine that the Biden administration is able to pry loose from Congress. It's probably not going to be the full 60 billion dollars, but let's go ahead and, and stipulate going to be one more round. But the, we can see now that the runway is not forever and With Donald Trump about to begin his steamroll toward the Republican nomination in just a few weeks, it's it's hard to see 2024 being a great year for supporters of Ukraine here in Washington.
1: The Pentagon, if you talk to people there, I think that the Ukrainians have about perhaps four to five months that they could do without another infusion of arms from the U.S. Um, but if you listen closely to what Zelensky said when he was here, I think this is a sign of his political intelligence. You know, he didn't get where he is without having a pretty keen understanding of when you have to evolve on things. And he was sending messages that he believes and, and, and can imagine a way in which Ukraine's approach to this war can adapt. That's a response to an active debate in the United States about how they've conducted uh, the counteroffensive and what they might be able to do in 2024. Jane, Susan, I have to say, uh, we've gone back into the 1990s all the way up through the last two decades to understand what's happening now. And I'm, I'm just always grateful for the chance to be able to talk about these things at a deeper level than just the week's events. Thanks to you both.
0: Oh, Evan, thanks so much. It's so
2: great to be with you guys. Yes, great to be with you guys.
1: This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia and Dan Richards with editing from Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alison Leighton Brown. We'll be back next week. Thank you very much for listening.